Well, let's go ahead and start with prayer. Ron, why don't you open us today? Sure. Father, we thank you for this opportunity we have to gather together to open your word, to look into it, to learn about dispensationalism. Pray that uh, we might have clarity of thought, clarity of mind tonight as we look at these things because we know they're important to us because they're important to you. Just thank you, Father, for being our Savior, for loving us, for this time that we have together. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. So, we're almost to the end of our chart here, so we'll uh, give it a quick review, and then we're going to actually hit some practical stuff tonight before we finish up the chart. We're basically looking at the history of the universe, effectively, or history of the Earth, um, and we're looking at it according to two rubrics here, what we're calling the civil sphere and the redemptive sphere. So the civil sphere being uh, government, uh, that, that which goes forward irrespective of redemption, it would include uh, local government, uh, it would include uh, some of the sciences, industry, uh, family life, uh, that apart from, you know, of, of individuals who are unbelievers alike, um, and, 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 and et cetera. So that's the civil sphere. And then we're going to look also at the redemptive sphere, because what the argument that has been made over the years uh, that uh, the dispensationalists have made is that there's more going on in God's universe than just the redemptive history. Okay, um, Reformed theology makes a great deal of redemptive history, and of course there is a redemptive thread. This is our redemptive thread that works, it works its way through the scriptures. But the argument here that's made by dispensationalists, it's not the only thread. In fact, it may not even, you might not even say it's a pri the primary thread. There seem to be two sort of thick threads weaving their way through Scripture such that, and that's why, and that's why remember Ryrie said that one of the bedrock principles of dispensationalism is a doxological view of, of human history. Um, and of course, he's gotten in trouble for saying that because doxology simply means the glory of God. He's gotten in trouble for that because the Reformed people say, we're interested in the glory of God too. Of course they are. But what Ryrie means is that there is the glory of God as the central theme, and it has two prompts. One is redemptive, but the other isn't. And if we just zone in, in zero in on this one, we're missing a lot of what God is doing in the universe. Okay, so that's, so that's why we're looking at it according to these two threads. Started in Genesis 1 and 2, um, if, if, you know, this, this dominion mandate here, if anything, is a, is a strong argument that it's not simply redemptive history because there's nothing redemptive about this first dispensation. The, you know, the first weeks of the universe, who knows how long, maybe months, weeks or months, however long it was that, they, uh, that uh, Adam and Eve were uh, walking with God in the garden in, in, in relative bliss, uh, I say innocence of a sort. Of course, they weren't confirmed in innocence or guilt, but they were created very good, so there was a positive bent or an inclination towards righteousness. There's no need for a, a redemptive thread yet, so you see it's you know, blank for that reason. Of course, the fall comes, and you know, we, could, we could 
we could spend a lot of time talking about why the fall comes or reasons why God allowed sin to enter into the universe. It's probably beyond the scope of this, of this topic here, but we recognize at that point now that a second thread has to start. And so we get this first gospel, uh, a very simple promise, uh, you know, this, 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 uh, this uh, snake would, would damage the, the heel of the seed of Eve, but the seed of Eve would crush the head of the snake. Okay, so, uh, and this is a promise here that the power of sin would be broken uh, and, and crushed and, and an opportunity then for people uh, to uh, resume their fellowship with God and we saw that indeed that apparently happened with both Adam and Eve. Up here, where we had the dominion mandate before and God walking day by day with Adam and Eve in the garden telling them what to do, now we find that God starts to recede a bit. He still does have conversations uh, with, with people. We, we saw that. But this doesn't seem to be the norm. Instead, the norm is now that God operates through conscience, as we, as we saw in Genesis 6.3. Okay? And so this is, this is the new way God is governing the whole of his creation, in, in, independent of this, of, this, of this thread here. This thread of redemption is going on. But God's also got concern for the rest of his creation. And it's moving forward under the, uh, under the rubric of conscience. Then comes the flood. Everything wiped out. Pretty much start over. And what we find here is there is a sort of a formalization of this civic sphere. The civic sphere. There's the Noahic covenant. There's nothing new about salvation. No, nothing new at all. We don't, we don't find any, any, any further details about how God's going to save uh, his people. Uh, blank. All we have is this statement here in Genesis 6 that there is to be the collective mankind that is going to uh, come together to rule uh, the rest of humanity. So whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his shed blood be shed, because in the image of God... God made man. And so human government has this collective authority to, to enforce ethics in the, in the universe up to and including the death penalty. Okay? This moves forward, and then we find Abraham introduced. Here is introduced what we might help call the formalization of the redemptive sphere. Okay, so this is, uh, this is uh, where we, we have a formal covenant cut with Abraham giving him considerable detail about how uh, there is going to be a people and a land and, in fact, leaders for that land and that, that ultimate leader is going to be none other than the seed that was promised earlier that's going to bring in, uh, usher in a, a kingdom. Okay? Now, Abraham's excited about it. He thinks it's going to happen relatively quickly, but it, but it doesn't. Uh, we recognize that four, there's 400 years just to build, build a nation. Most of it's spent down in Egypt. Okay? But we find that there's this, there's this... Now, there's nothing new as far as human government. In fact, the rest of the world is governed the same way it always was. And apparently there were clan leaders who were enforcing law, got Hammurabi and, and others like that, who were, who were coming up with law codes, and, and I think appropriately so. They were... They were, they were you know, improving on how man should govern man. 
And some did well and some did poorly, but nonetheless, this is all God's intention. Okay? The only thing that's different is that they're supposed to acknowledge Abraham because whoever honors Abraham will be blessed. Those who fail to honor Abraham will be cursed. Okay? We march forward. Abraham receives his promise. Now we come to the come to Moses where we actually find here a formalization of the kingdom. Okay? As a kingdom. Okay? And uh, and we, we find here the beginning of the Israelite nation. Okay? Here the people began, but they really hadn't there was only a handful of them at this point. Now there's a whole, perhaps a million of them that, at the time of Moses. Now they're big enough to be a nation. And so God forms them into a nation complete with leadership, priests, and a law. Okay, So they are basically a theocratic, uh, a the, if I can say a, 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 a a constitutional theocracy. I think is that what I called it last time. There's a law that governs them, but God is the theocrat. He is the uh, he is the ruler. He rules through kings. Now, the thing that's interesting about this particular uh, uh, dispensation is that you have the civic and the redemptive themes all come together. Okay, this is this is the first time this has happened. Up till this point, they've been kept very much apart. Okay, now they've been brought together. Okay, and so you've got kings and priests, and we mentioned last time that the the offerings or the tithes went to the organization, which was a cultic organization and a civic organization. It was it did religious things, it did civic things, and it was all bundled into one. Okay, uh, the other nations ultimately keep going up here on their own and this is the way it ought to be except they are supposed to be coming to this Israel they're supposed to be streaming to her light okay and because they are the kingdom of priests for the nations okay they never do this successfully perhaps we see under Solomon a glimpse of this but only a glimpse and so the nations continue on so this human government continues on and there's not much acknowledgement of this nation of Israel, except uh, locally. And, and we move on. Of course, this fails to go into exile. Uh, the, uh, the, the nation effectively collapses as a nation. In fact, the king is deposed. In fact, there's no other king that's going to sit on this until Christ comes, okay? until the Messiah comes. So there's a gap here where there's no king at all. Nonetheless, they were supposed to maintain the forms. Okay, so Daniel's in Babylon, and he opens his window towards Jerusalem so that he can pray towards the rubble that used to be the temple, because that's the way it was supposed to be done. Okay, and so he's going through the empty forms because that's what he's told to do. That's, that's the only recourse he has. It's the only solution he has. Um, but they're looking for some solution to the problem, and the solution comes in the person of Christ. Christ comes offering a resumption of this kingdom. He says, I'll bring the kingdom back. I'm, I, 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 I'm offering it to you. If you simply will take it, I will give you the kingdom. I will assume the throne as king. And had they received him, remember, remember the statement? 
If, in fact, you receive me, then John the Baptist would be the Elijah that was promised, okay? the, 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 which is the Elijah of the end times that's going to announce the coming of the king. Okay? So if you had accepted him, John the Baptist would have taken the role of the second Elijah introducing the king of, of the millennial kingdom. Okay? That, and that's the promise. Of course, they, don't re, they, they reject him. Okay. And so God and so Christ then establishes a new order. Okay, and, and I mean there's there's a number of passages we can look at on this, but I think particularly of Luke chapter nineteen, for instance, uh, where they're coming into the into the uh, the uh, into the temple area for the last Passover. Um, they're, they're, this is the triumphal entry, and they're coming into the city, and, 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 and Jesus tells them a parable. It says, Jesus told them a parable because they thought the kingdom was about to appear immediately. Okay? And so the point of the parable is what? To say, the kingdom of God is not going to appear immediately. Okay? Instead, the king is going to go away. He's going to leave the, the, uh, the nobleman's going to go into a far country, there receive his kingdom, and to return to establish his, uh, to establish his reign. So anticipate a period of time where I'm gone, he says. I'm leaving. I'm not going to be reigning as king as you are anticipating. Instead, I'm leaving, I'm going away, and in fact, you need to buckle down and occupy till I come. Okay, and, and, and details then what their responsibilities are within the life of the church. And one of the specific things he said was, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God. And here, again, we find here a, a separation again of these two spheres. Okay? The spheres that were together briefly for the theocracy, and as we're going to see in a little bit, are going to come together for the, uh, for the millennial kingdom are again separated. There's a civic sphere, and there's a cultic sphere. When I say cultic, again, don't, don't think cults, you know, bad. Uh, think in terms of religion. Uh, I would say the ecclesiastical, but I don't want to use that all the way through here. That's my problem, because this is the ecclesia and not this. So that's the, that's the reason. So they're, they're separated again, and we have just gotten here to talking about the responsibilities that the church has, okay? So there's the, the responsibility to separate uh, the functions of, of, of church and state. The church does not tell the state what to do, nor does the state tell the church what to do. Um, and so there, there's a separation. And that's, again, where we, where the, uh, this is where the rubber hits the road and, and dispensationalism is born, Right? Okay, remember, we, again, we looked at, at two figures that are probably principally responsible for the dispensational system, John Nelson Darby, James Hall Brooks, and both of them are in a situation where they're, they are both officers within the church and they're told to make some sort of, of stand in the political sphere. In fact, uh, uh, John Nelson Darby was told, we're not going to let any of your converts into the church unless they swear allegiance to the, to the King of England. And these are, these are raw, former Irish Catholics. <laughs> They're not the kinds of people who are just ready to, to swear allegiance to the King. And, and Darby is like, no, 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 no. 
That's, that's not the role of the church to get everyone to swear allegiance to the king. Those are separate spheres. The king can get the allegiance from these people in his own way, but that's not the role of the church. I won't do it. And so he backs out of the church and starts his own church on dispensational principles for this reason. Same thing, same thing with, with uh, James Hall Brooks. James Hall Brooks is told, you've got to decide, are you going to be a northern Presbyterian church or a southern Presbyterian church because you're in a border city, St. Louis. You've got to decide one way or the other. Are you a, are you a, slavery, a slavery church and a, a states' rights church are you a, an abolitionist church and a strong federal government church? Which one are you? And Brooks's answer is, that's, that's, that's not a decision that churches make. Okay? Whether I'm going to uh, go for a strong federal government or, or for a strong, strong straight government. So that's, that's not my responsibility. It's not our responsibility as a church. And of course, he's got vested interest. He doesn't want his church blowing apart. He's got people from both sides. And they were worshiping together because they could. Because they had something in common in the redemptive sphere, even though they might have had significant differences in the civil sphere. Okay, And so both of these uh, emerged here because they concluded that we're not here. Since we're not here, we don't have a role as a church in, in government uh, and and also in social functions. So let's let's look at this excursus here. All that to get to our little box here uh, on uh, is there anything intrinsic to dispensational theology that informs ecclesiastical expressions of social and political action? Probably around page twenty-five or so. It's a, it's, it's a big. It's a, like a three two-page box. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Ecclesi- what I mean, ecclesiastic by the function of the church. Yeah. Ecclesia is the Greek word for church. So ecclesiastical is having to do with the church. We have some approximate dates for Darby and, and Brooks. Yeah, Darby, um, he was uh, most of the, I think, about the first three quarters of the 19th century. So from the early 1800s. I think he was born like in 1800 something and lived up into the 1870s. Uh, Brooks is a little bit later, uh, but not a whole lot. Um, and pro- probably probably pushed push that about 20 years up uh, for Brooks. Usually, the date given for the for the beginning of the dispensational system is 1833, which is when. Darby broke with the Irish Anglican Church, um, but uh, I don't know if I don't know if that's the right right date to put out there. But that's often what it's often what it is. Yeah. Okay. So as we've noted above, one of the foremost reasons for the emergence of dispensational theology in the 19th century is the realization here that the church was primarily a spiritual people of God. They had no business addressing the social, sociological and, and uh, political upheaval rampant in the day. Now, in Old Testament Israel, there was a physical people of God that had assumed this role, but the New Testament church had a totally different commission. They were a spiritual people. So 
and how sometimes dispensationalists have perhaps been a little bit too sharp in saying that Israel's the physical people of God, they get the earth, uh, the, the church is the spiritual people of God, they get heaven. It's prob- that's probably too sharp of a distinction. But, but the point that they're trying to make is the church really has only to do with spiritual functions and not secular functions. Where Israel was both a, a secular and spiritual institution. That's, that's really what we mean here. But as time passed, this hallmark of dispensational theology has become something of an embarrassment to dispensationalists, and aghast that some of their forerunners had dismissed social action as polishing the brass on a sinking ship. This is a statement that D.L. Moody made. Uh, he said, we're, 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 it's not the church's function uh, to be to be full bore uh, going after social and political functions because that's simply polishing the brass on a sinking ship. Uh, that's not the function of the church. Uh, so, so we've got we've got this group of people uh, known, eventually, as the new evangelicals, who came along and said we're embarrassed by those dispensationalists. Okay, we're, we're embarrassed by the fact that they have not taken a stand in the secular arena, and in fact, they uh, you'll we'll find here that Carl Hen- Henry writes this book, The Uneasy Conscience of Modern Fundamentalism. Basically, the argument of the book is that the fundamentalists and the dispensationalists had gotten the doctrine of the kingdom wrong. Um, instead of thinking in terms of a, of, a, of a kingdom that was future, we should instead think of the church as the, as the present expression of the kingdom of God and therefore should be concerned with all of the kingdom promises and, and prophecies that were made in the Old Testament, okay? And there's a lot of them. Um, in fact, this is, this is much of what's, what's governing... Um, well, let's, let's see if I can back up. Um, this, is, this, is, this is the era in which modernism is growing. This is, this is where modernist liberalism, theological liberalism, reaches its peak, okay, during the end of the 19th century. And they are all to a man... Postmillennialists. What's a postmillennialist? Remember this? Okay. The thinking Christ already came, right? No. Yeah, Christ is going to come after. That that's the post. Oh, after the yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So so Christ is going to come after we establish the kingdom, after we establish the millennium. Okay, and so. Theological liberals, to a man, were, were, were post-millennialists, and so they were thinking in terms of, we've got to establish the kingdom. And how are we going to establish the kingdom? Well, we look in the Old Testament. What's the kingdom going to be like? Well, we're going to find all kinds of advances in, in, uh, in technology. And there's going to be all kinds of advances in agriculture. And there's, all, there's going to be all kinds of progress... Uh, because there's going to be a lot of people, there's not going to be any sickness. There's and 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 so that so what what ended up happening is the church sort of shifted its focus to say, okay, we've got to we've got to have a holistic view of this kingdom and go after all of these things. And so you so what do you have? You have all kinds of you know this is Methodist Hospital, the Baptist Hospital, you know St. Joe's Hospital, you know because all the churches were building hospitals because the kingdom there's not going to be any sickness. And so we better build hospitals. 
Okay? There's not going to be any orphans, and so we better build orphanages. Okay? And so it, it, over, over the course of a couple of generations, it became assumed that the church existed for basically one reason, to make society better. Okay? Because if we can make society better and, and push it towards its conclusion, then the grand kingdom will, will burst into blossom. Will, will, and, and, and the kingdom will appear. And so that, that, that's, that's the thought that's going through uh, all, of, all of these folks' thoughts. And that's why we have what's, what's sometimes called the social gospel. Okay? Rather than a gospel of Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, and you better believe, uh, repent and believe in order to be saved, the gospel be, became, okay, we're going to try and get, we're trying to push everything forward like a big machine in order to, to usher in the kingdom. And so it became a social gospel. Okay, so that's why it's sometimes called that. Okay, the, the fundamentalists and the dispensationalists were, were waving their arms wildly, saying, no, 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 this is all wrong. The kingdom is not now. The, the kingdom is something future. It is not now. And, in fact, that's not going to happen until after Jesus comes back. Okay. And so the mission of the church now is not to usher into the kingdom, it's to, it's, to, it's, to, it's to advance the redemptive cause of Christ and build a kingdom constituency of people who have, been, who have, who have, who have embraced Christ. This is the mission of the church. We need to give the gospel out. And, and we, we need to send out missionaries to plant churches, not missionaries out to plant hospitals, nothing wrong with hospitals and that's that's of course this is where it becomes difficult because it sounds like I'm you know I'm, I'm bashing hospitals and orphanages as, as though they're bad no they're not bad not at all but I would say this is the realm of Caesar okay that's that's that that's the realm that's the civic sphere we're supposed to be advancing uh, the the dominion mandate and, and and doing all of these things as humans as the human race but not as the church per se. Okay, the church's function is to is its primary function, its mission towards those that are without, is to is to give the gospel. Of course, after 60, 70, 80 years of people being indoctrinated, thinking over and over and over again, the church is here to help us, help society get better, and to help help its governors govern. When the dispensationalist says, no, that's not what we're going to do, this was, it was a head-scratcher for most people. Why in the world are these dispensationalists doing this? And so we've got uh, uh, Carl Henry here saying, we've got to get rid of this social disengagement and re-engage um, in, in order uh, to, to have a holistic approach uh, to, to the, the mission of the church. Okay, let's, let's back up here and see if I can, can't uh, document some of this. Number one, historically, the presence and expansion of the kingdom was the primary impetus for the social gospel. Walter Rauschenbusch, whose name may mean nothing to you, he's the father of the social gospel, one of the primary figures in, in, fun, uh, in, 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 in modernist liberalism, wrote, if theology is to offer an adequate doctrinal basis for the social gospel, it must not only make room for the doctrine of the kingdom of God, but must give the kingdom a central place and revise all doctrines around it so that they will articulate organically with it. 
the doctrine is itself the social gospel. Okay? So we're going after the kingdom, and for that reason, we're going to have a social gospel. In defense of the social gospel, Washington Gladden, another major figure here, he says, when we are bidden to seek first the kingdom of God, we are bidden to set our hearts on the great consummation when every department of life, the family, schools, amusements, art, business, politics, industry, national policies, international relationships, will be governed by Christian law and controlled by Christian influences. Okay? So the church has to somehow get above Caesar. <laughs> okay? The church is going to govern all of these functions. Family, schools, amusements, art, business, politics, industry, national policies, international relationships. All governed by Christian law and Christian influences. And the cr complete Christianization of all of life is the goal. Is what we pray for and work for when we pray and work for the coming kingdom of heaven. Okay, so that's post-millennialism. That's theological liberalism. Okay? After this fails, the dispensationalists come along and say, no, that's not the function of the church. The, ch the function of the church, the mission of the church is much more modest. Uh, we're not trying to usher in the kingdom. We are trying to build a kingdom constituency, yes. We're trying to add people to a kingdom that is coming. But it is, but it is not our function here to do anything more. Okay? And so, and, and, and this is this is, this is a jaw-dropper for, for, for most uh, Americans. Like, well, what are these people? They're not doing what churches are supposed to do. And it, was and it was an embarrassment. People were embarrassed by the dispensationalists and said, okay. And, and, and so what uh, Carl Henry does is writes this book, Uneasy Conscience of Fundamentalism. And he spends really most of the entire book, in fact, is to correcting the dispensational view of the kingdom, encouraging his readers to discard any element of the message of the kingdom which cuts the nerve of world compassion, and instead to find a both-and balance between kingdom now, errors of liberalism, and the kingdom then, errors of dispensationalism. Okay, so the liberals said the kingdom is now, we're supposed to be building it, the dispensationalists were saying no, the kingdom is not yet at all, and Carl Henry says, maybe we can get something in between that the kingdom is now, but it's not yet. Okay, so that's, that's, his, that's his goal. Later he would write here, while not itself the kingdom, the church is the kingdom's most vital approximation and manifestation in the present age. Its ongoing mission is to extend the king's victory over the hostile forces of sin and evil, injustice and oppression. So that's the function of the church. The, the function of the church is to end oppression and injustice and evil everywhere. Okay, so it, again, this, this broader mission uh, re-emerges. Joel Carpenter uh, describes George Ladd. George Ladd is sort of a theologian of the new evangelicalism, and he says his personal mission was to replace dispensationalism with an evangelical view of the kingdom of God and the end times that was more able to sustain social engagement. Okay, R.C. Sproul, you're familiar with him, he's still around today, describes the mission of the church, and he's in the, in the Reformed community, as making the invisible reign of Christ visible, noting that to the extent that people become aware of his invisible reign, then abuse, slavery, rape, abortion, hunger, lack of clothing, and lack of shelter will disappear. Okay, so that's the function of the church. 
to make all of these things disappear in the in in the uh, in in the church. And and dispensationalists have been pretty much resolutely saying, no, that's not the function of the church. Nothing wrong with these things. It's not as though we are somehow in favor of abuse, slavery, rape, abortion, hunger, lack of clothing, and lack of shelter. But it is not the function of the institutional church to take care of those problems. That is the function of humanity. And in fact, as model humans, we should be concerned about those things, and we should be uh, concerned about people who are who are being abused and being raped and, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and hungry. And and honestly, if 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 uh, I'm, I'm I'm right here to say, as a dispensationalist, if there's no concern at all in in your in your life and and no uh, and no outpouring of any resources of time or money in the least to uh, for these kinds of causes, it does appear that there's there's an imbalance here because you're saying all that's important is this, this. Eh, I don't really care about people. I just care about the church. Well, that's 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 a certainly an improper uh, focus here. Uh, but but oftentimes that's what the dispensationalists are accused of. We don't care about you know these poor women who get who get raped and 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 get pregnant and we're not concerned about the hungry people we should be we should be marked as christians by concern for those things but that does not mean necessarily that the church needs to uh, uh, uh open up its coffers and spend all of its resources on things that are the responsibility of the civil realm procedure does that make sense yeah, ask a question here because I know you have. Yeah, I still don't understand how the liberals can think that for a post-millennial period to exist, when Book of Revelation talks about Christ reigning from Jerusalem, the kings of the earth will come up to to Jerusalem to seek His counsel. Who do they think is on the throne then during this this period of time if Christ comes after a millennial? Well, he's going to be the capstone of the millennium. So he's going to once once the once the church brings it up to the door, then he's going to appear and and he becomes the capstone. When I say post millennialism, I don't mean that when he comes the millennium is over. It's rather that's the zenith. He he's he's the capstone of the of of a, of a, of a ramping up. Of the kingdom, we're in the kingdom. We're building the kingdom, building, 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 building. And once the kingdom is there, he arrives and takes his place at the head. But the millennial period is supposed to be a time of peace, where where everything is. Yes. War is in the way with. I mean, everything. Right. And so. And that was. And, and 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 ultimately, what is it that killed? Did anybody anybody here? And, and, and what killed post millennialism? Why don't we hear much about it today? World War One. World War One. I, I don't. I, I can't. I, I don't know the numbers to say that it's it, whether it's the most people killed. It, it's really irrelevant. It was one of the most horrific wars. I mean, there was there was no Geneva Convention. There was no. There was there was really no uh, no governance at all 
over how people fought, and it was the and it was the most brutal of wars. All this uh, chemical warfare that was going on. Um, they were using uh, they were using modern war machinery and 19th century war techniques. So you've got whole fields full of people marching, you know, marching across, and there's there's machine guns at the other end, and they kill them all. And 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 it just keeps and it just uh, and it's just just a horrific time. And there was a realization. At the, at the end of this, this, this is really what kills off theological liberalism and post-millennialism simultaneously. Things aren't getting better. I mean, there's a realization that things are, this cannot be better. This cannot be the kingdom coming if, if, if it looks like this. And so really there's a, really in the, it, between 1920 and really the end of World War II, we've got something of a, quagmire of nobody knows what they're going to do. Because liberalism has failed, post-millennialism has failed, uh, amillennialism has been really in decline, they, they make an, a, a resurgence. Uh, premillennialism then makes its resurgence, and then we have in that in-between position here of the new evangelicalism that has the sort of the already not yet view of the kingdom. So there's, there's almost... A, between 1920 and 1945 is almost a complete rewriting of, of American Christianity. So, yeah. But, but I will say, in, in answer to your question, one thing you can appreciate about the post-millennials, and I do appreciate something about them, they are concerned about uh, the details of the kingdom. Okay? Uh, they are concerned, they, they, they look at this and say there's going to be an element where... There's going to be tremendous agriculture. There's going to be there's going to be peace. There's going to be uh, 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 absence of sickness. And so they look at all these things and says, okay, if all those things are going to happen, then we better get to work. Okay. And so I, I have the appreciation for them that they look back at the Old Testament and said, this is what the kingdom's going to look like, and so we better make it look like that. Which is, I guess, again, contrary to the amillennialist position, which says, really, the kingdom's just spiritual. Everything, everything you read about the kingdom here in the Old Testament, it's just typological. There, the kingdom is, is invisible. It's, it's, you can't see it. Um, and uh, it just sort of went underground. Okay, so, so don't imagine it. I, I, I at least appreciate that the postmillennialist says the kingdom is going to have all of these features. We're going to say that it will and it must because that's how it's promised. Okay, so, so at least I give that to them. Okay. So, uh, any other questions you might have on the uh, function of the church? And again, there's there's always you know it, it, taking a look at individual churches. There's there is probably there's quite a bit of room for disagreement as to how much one may do in order to get a hearing for the gospel. Um, and, and there's all kinds of quibbles that go go up. You know, what, is it okay to have a wild game dinner? Uh, most of us say yes. Is it okay to have a golf outing? Is it okay to have a carnival? Uh, what, what, are, what are the things we can do in Caesar's realm 
that will help us to get a, a hearing for the gospel. And so there, there, there's debate on that, and I think legitimate debate as to as to how far one a, a church can go in order to get a hearing for the gospel. I've got a lot of ideas about that, but I don't really want to you know spend our time talking about that. Um, but I think there's room for some debate there as to as to what. But it's not these things are not ends unto themselves. Okay, whatever 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 we're, we're saying is. Anything that the church is doing in the social and secular realm are, are not ends in and of themselves, because that's not the function of the church. The, the, the church does not have a, have a civic mission, but a, but a redemptive mission. Does that make sense? Okay. This brings us to our last dispensation, then, the dispensation of the millennium. And again, as we have been all the way through, we'll explain the term. Why do we call it that? Well, it's really millennium simply means a thousand years. So perhaps it's uh, perhaps that's not the best term. Perhaps kingdom would be best. Uh, but here, uh, did Paul calls it the dispensation of the fullness of times. It's elsewhere called the kingdom. Matthew has a fondness for calling it the kingdom. It's also called the kingdom because Christ will personally rule on the earth from the throne of David for the duration of this dispensation, which is a thousand years. Now, because the term kingdom has several meanings in scripture, I'm going to use the term millennium just to specify that is the kingdom I am talking about. Okay, there are, uh, there are more than one kingdom that show up in scripture. And so when I talk about the kingdom, well, I'm going to use millennium just for that reason. Okay, so what happens here, Christ comes back. Of course, there's you know there's the rapture first. We'll talk about that later. Uh, but Christ comes back here, and uh, you know, with the crown uh, here, with the, uh, the glowing, that look like the crown. I don't know. Uh, but uh, but this this is the rule and reign of Jesus Christ for a thousand years. Okay. And uh, what do we know about this this period of time? Well. It extends a thousand years from the second coming of Christ in glory to the commencement of the eternal state. And we say this because Revelation 20, actually six times, says it's going to be a thousand years, 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 and a thousand years. Lest we have any confusion about it, because there has been a lot of confusion about this over the years. It's going to be a thousand year period. Okay. The new revelation is direct revelation from Christ's throne. We don't know what it's going to be. Uh, we'll find out when we get there. The new administration here is that Christ will rule directly and immediately. There's going to be near Edenic conditions with respect to the natural sciences will be restored. Uh, the incredible blessings of the new covenant will be enacted. Um, we've got we've got promises like like uh, uh, sheep lying down with wolves and lions. Uh, we have we have. Uh, someone going out with uh, with a with a with a with a planter. He's out there on the tractor with the planter, and he's going to be overtaken by the reaper. Now, obviously, there's a little bit of hyperbole going here on here, but the idea here is there's just going to be fantastic success. There's going to be plenty. No one's going to be hungry. Sickness is going to be wiped out. Animals will get along. There will be no more war. And and, and, and you know, people are going to take their 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 swords and beat them into plowshares because they don't have any use for a sword anymore. So might as well make it into a farming implement. 
we're going to find that there's going to be uh, astronomical things that are going on, geological things. There's going to be uh, abundant water throughout the entirety of the Earth, uh, which, you know, you look around now, there's a lot of places that are hurting for water. Uh, even our own even our own country, California and such, is hurting for water. We won't be hurting for water during the millennium. In fact, Israel, one of the more parched areas of the world here, there's going to be a whole new stream that's going to connect the Mediterranean Sea and the Dead Sea, and it's going to basically come from the fountainhead that's at, at the Mount of Olives. And so there's going to be abundant water. Uh, and so all of these things are going to be marking uh, this uh, this new this millennium uh, near edenic conditions. It's I, I say near edenic because it's not quite edenic. I mean, there's still sin uh, here, uh, but with God ruling with his iron with his iron scepter, uh, sin doesn't get very far. You know, he's 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 ruling over this this uh, this this world of his, and he knows everything and sees everything, and so not. Not much gets past him. Like nothing gets past him. Yes. Mm-hmm. I think it's Psalm seventy-three, and I'm not sure, uh, but there is a passage in the Psalms that talks about, and and it seems like it's in the millennial reign of Christ. But it's talking about Christ saving, saving the oppressed, rescuing the oppressed. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking now, if that if that is in the millennial kingdom. Uh, would that be like at the beginning? Would that be done through representatives that go out? Uh, in other words, in other words, would there be like a process at the beginning of the millennium of where that rule needs to be established? Because you you have the whole earth, you have the whole earth, and it's going to take a little bit of time for Christ representatives to go out and enforce. Is that it? Is that how Christ will well, rescue those that are oppressed? Because you if, can if imagine I can, kind of at the yeah. beginning, there will be people or people and they will oppress. I guess I think in terms of if oppression starts, Christ is going to nip it in the bud, if I can, if I can put, it, put it that way, okay. so, that, so that the oppression doesn't go anywhere. And if anybody, for some reason, experiences loss and is hungry, there's going to be an immediate relief for them. So the, so the poor will not be poor long. There will be there will be there and there will be complete social justice uh, in, in 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 the universe. Okay. So that I guess that's that's how I would see. So it. it's the whole the whole length of it, just the whole length. It's a it's a continual rescuing. Yeah, but there is sin that goes on, and so there there is a there's at least the possibility of some sort of short term oppression or sh- or short term uh, want. But God it, it very quickly takes care of those. So things. for the oppressor, it's the iron iron fist. Yes. And for the oppressed, it's the re- right. the relieving. Yeah, it's not a sin free situation, but okay. sin doesn't. But sin has a very tight rein on it. Okay. Okay. Are you familiar with that that psalm? Yeah, I'm not sure which it is, but it yeah, I'm not sure sounds which it is either. No. Okay, so near Edenic conditions are are brought back. The blessings of the new covenant, which are legion and very tightly detailed in the in the Old Testament. Israel will be restored to her place among the nations. Isaiah 61 and 62 detail this in 
in, 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 again, great detail, so that she will be restored to her land and the nations will stream to her light. She will be what she was supposed to be back here. She will be a kingdom of priests for the nations. Will they still be Jews or will they be converted? Well, well, they, I, they'll, they'll be uh, completed Jews, if I can put it that way. They will, they will be Jews who looked, you know, remember at the, at the end of the tribulation, uh, the, 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 the powers of Antichrist are coming to squeeze Israel out of existence, and they're, they're basically, you know, moments from being completely wiped out. Christ appears, they will look upon him whom they have pierced and weep. And, and the idea here is a, a weeping of repentance. And they will and they will recognize him for who he is, the uh, the, the Messiah. They should have recognized him two thousand plus years ago. Uh, now they finally do. And Maybe so if he had come that way two thousand <laughs> Well that's not the way it happened. <laughs> As Isaiah told them, but they didn't quite pick up all those details. <laughs> well, I mean they didn't pick up on it. All of them didn't pick up on it. Obviously the first Christian right. were, were Jews. Right. Yeah. So, so the Jews will be the Jews will be converted. So, so the the ethnic Jews, you know, as as Paul says, not all Israel is Israel. Well, at this point, all Israel will be Israel. Okay. So all 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 of ethnic Israel will be believing Israel. Is the idea. And in fact, I understand that um, from, for instance, in Jeremiah thirty-one and Zephaniah thirteen, that this will be a, this that this will be a a, a complete. Uh, uh, a complete conversion of the, of, of, of the Jewish people. Um, they will all serve me from shoulder to shoulder. Uh, uh, Romans eleven twenty nine, and so all Israel will be saved. So I understand that to be a pretty much a comprehensive uh, turning of the Jewish people to embrace their Messiah at this point. Okay, and not to get too far off track here, what about all the other non-Christians. Well, that's, that's, those are going to be the, the sheep and the goats are going to be separated. And the goats will be uh, sent to their reward and the sheep will get their reward. So the, that's, and that's where you populate the, popu- the, 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 uh, the kingdom with people in ordinary bodies. There, there are people who survive the tribulation who are believers. These are the sheep uh, that that enter into the kingdom in their natural bodies, and those who are unbelievers are going to be excised at this point. The, the goats. I, we're assuming that the sheep are the good and the goats are the bad. It doesn't actually say that, but we're assuming that. Just real quick, uh, in in uh, Ezekiel, what are those uh, two chapters that uh, are talking about the uh, uh, millennial uh, reinstitution of the sacrifice? That's the next topic. Yes, yeah, coming. Oh, okay. That's our next text box, and hopefully we can get that tonight. <laughs> okay, so Israel is going to be restored to her place among the nations. They're going to serve as priests for the nations within the context of a newly reinstated temple rituals. There you go, Ezekiel forty to forty-eight. So right there, and uh, asking you shall receive. Right there. Now, here's where it becomes a little bit dicey, and this is where some people write off dispensationalism entirely. Some of the mosaic sacrifices will be reinstated, and we look at that and say, "What? I thought all of those were wiped out when Christ came. 
So why are there going to be sacrifices? Well, that's our big question. But there's a lot of passages that say as much. There's no reason, however, to believe that the millennium is a reversion to the dispensation of law. It's not like we're reverting back to here and, and, and starting this over again. The law is done away with. Uh, not all of the uh, mosaic forms reappear, and there are many new features in the millennial kingdom. There is no regress in progressive revelation. So just as there were some features here, uh, just yeah, to remember, there's some features here that show up here, there's going to be some features here that show up here. That doesn't mean we've reverted to law at this point. Okay. So why are there sacrifices? And that's the tough question. There's a really good article, Christ's Atonement and Animal Sacrifices in Israel. It was originally written for Grace Theological Journal. Uh, if you put that title into your Google search, you'll actually find an updated uh, uh, version of that article that he is that he's completed. Whitcomb's still alive. He's uh, 91 years here, I believe, uh, but still going strong. Uh, I say here, because the Old Testament sacrificial system is described in Hebrews 10 as a shadow of things to come, many critics of dispensationalism balk at the suggestion that the sacrifices will come back after the death of Christ. But it's fairly clear that the anim animal sacrifices will resume. So how do we address this problem? Well, the answer seems to come in the realization that sacrifices are not properly a means of salvation or even temporary stays on divine judgment until Christ came. That wasn't a function of the, uh, of the uh, sacrifices. They didn't cover, you know, that's, that's what I call the landfill view of the sacrifices. They would just cover over the sin over and over and over and over and over again, and, uh, and then when Christ came, wiped it out. Well, no, the sacrifices, actually the terms that are used are, are terms of expiation and removal. Okay, So we're going to have to talk about that too. Indeed, the author of Hebrews is insistent that the sacrifices could do nothing redemptively. You, the, the sacrifices didn't save anyone. Uh, they didn't even delay his judgment. If this were the case, we would have to conclude that there's two ways of salvation in the Bible. One, by sacrifices in the Old Testament. Two, by Christ in the New. And that's not true. Salvation has always been by faith in the promises of God that he would supply a seed, i.e. Christ. Okay? Now, you didn't know all the details about, about this Christ figure in the Old Testament, but it was ultimately salvation was exactly the same in both Testaments. So the sacrifices did not render one saved. It's not as though you, you, you offered a sacrifices and you were safe until you know the next, next week you had to come and offer sacrifices. That's not how it worked. You were saved by faith in the promises of God. Okay? Now, these sacrifices are demonstrations of the fact that you have faith, but they did not save. Uh, and I, I can't stress that enough. Sacrifices can't save anyone. So, why is it that they had them then. If sacrifices didn't save anyone in the Old Testament, why is it that they had them? Well, I say I give here. There's there's uh, three functions here. Somehow the one, the three disappeared from the one, but we'll look at them. Primary function, Old Testament sacrifices, was theocratic. That is, they actually expiated guilt, propitiated God's wrath, and effected peace between individual and His covenant God and covenant community. Okay, so, if you, if you did something wrong, 
and, uh, and you went uh, to the authorities, and you were brought before the authorities, or went, or whether you volunteered or not, you know, you'll find out what you're going to do here. You go before the authorities, and they would say, okay, you have to pay a fine, and you have to offer sacrifice. Okay? You have to, offer, you have to pay a fine, and you have to offer a sacrifice. Because that's, that, that was the means whereby... Uh, Penalties were enforced. Okay, there were fines and there were sacrifices, and and the sacrifices hurt. You know, animals weren't cheap. I mean, this is these were expensive commodities, and so these were penalties. Uh, but by doing these, you could be right with the community, and right with the king. Okay, now the king is ultimately God, but hear me out. I'm not saying that this these saved you. But within the context of the theocratic community, within the kingdom, they made you right. That, that you know, we, we talk about someone going to prison, staying there for two years, coming out, and what do we sometimes say? He paid his debt to society, okay? Which means everything's, everything's wiped out and he's good now. Well, that's the same thing that those sacrifices did. You paid your debt to society by offering sacrifices, and these restored you to a place of fellowship within the community and good standing. That was the primary function here. So, it didn't contribute to the salvation of Old Testament saints, but they did satisfy temporal wrath incurred in the eyes of the law, paid the temporal debts incurred in view of the law, except in some cases where no payment was possible. You know, the only, the only thing you could do was give your life. Uh, capital crimes, and made possible peaceful participation in the covenant community, even when sacrifices were not offered in faith. You know, you know, we're surprised by that. Hebrews 9.13 says you could offer these sacrifices and be right with the community, but if you did, offered them in faith, it, this, they, they rang hollow, but they, they were okay. And you, you, can, you can go and pay your fine, and you can slap it down there on, on, on the counter and say, I, you shouldn't have given this to me. It's wrong what you're doing. And, and they'll say, okay, well, sorry you feel this way, but having paid this, you're, you're good. You're good to go now. You're, you've paid your debt to society, and you, can, and, you, and you can go. And the same thing was in the Old Testament. You could, you could offer your sacrifices with a, a, a foul and sour spirit, and it would make you right with the community. It didn't say anything about your, 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 your place before God. That wasn't, that wasn't the primary function here of the sacrifices. So, as Whitcomb says, these sacrifices were temporal, finite, external, and legal. Not eternal, infinite, internal, and soteriological. Nonetheless, what happened was personally and immediately significant, not just symbolic or prophetic. Something actually happened. You were, you were exonerated. Similarly, the Old Testament sacrifices stood as a covenant marker that facilitated fellowship within the elect community. Uh, much as the rite of communion of, and Lord's Supper in the New Testament, the sacrifices, especially the peace offering, enabled the participant to maintain theocratic fellowship with God and the people of God. And, if I can, and running out of time already here, there is nothing in this purpose that would preclude their reinstatement in the millennium. Okay, so if we have a millennium that starts here, there's not going to be prisons, uh, so uh, so there's got to be some other legal system, some sort of a retribution system that's there. And what's it going to be? Sacrifices. Okay, you're going you're going to you're going to pay the fine. 
then and you're going to offer a sacrifice, and there's going to be an absolution given. Okay, you're good. You're good to go. And in fact, uh, it looks like probably we'll have the, these fellowship meals. Not only are you good to go, but you actually get to sit down with the uh, with the with a governmental official and and have have party. You know, eat the sheep. Uh, because that, that's, that's sort of symbolic of the fact that everything has been made right within the theocratic community. So that's the first function, and it's a really awkward spot to stop, but it's quarter after. So I have to stop. But here's, that's the first function of the, of the, of the uh, sacrifices. And that function, I don't think there's any reason why that couldn't be reinstated in the, uh, in the millennium.